Well, if you have a Bible with you tonight, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1 is what we'll study tonight before we partake of the Lord's Supper. By way of preface, though, let me point out something we've been seeing in 1 Samuel and give you a slightly different take. We've been seeing in 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings that God sees and he decides differently than we do. In choosing David, we read in 1 Samuel 13, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now, what I haven't yet told you about that saying, that familiar phrase, is that it can be translated differently and understood differently than how most of us usually understand it. We usually understand it to mean something about David's heart beating like God's heart, following after God's heart. But it may be translated, the Lord has sought a man according to his own heart. In other words, according to God's own heart. God is the one doing the seeking, and he's seeking a man, not necessarily who yet seeks God's heart, but God seeks according to his own heart. It's a man of God's own choosing. Another familiar phrase, what we saw last Sunday, is in 1 Samuel 16, where God said, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Most of us probably take this immediately as the Lord knows our hearts and he can see whether those hearts are good or not. And he's choosing David here according to David's noble or godly heart. But again, a translation could be put differently. It could be put like this. Man sees according to the eyes, but God sees according to the heart. According to his heart. Man can only see with eyes, right? We can only see the external. But God sees according to his own heart. He sees and decides not with the eyes, but with his own heart, according to his own choosing. There are verses that may speak more about God's sovereign choosing than about David's godliness, at least at that point. This fits with other language in the chapter. God said, I have provided for myself a king. He's initiating. Much later in 2 Samuel 7, David will talk about God working because of your promise and according to your own heart you have brought all this about. According to your own heart. This kind of interpretation fits with the overarching themes in 1 Samuel that God exalts his power, and he lays low the lofty. He exalts the humble, but he rejects the proud. He works in inversive ways. He works not according to human wisdom, but according to his own thoughts. And we saw on Sunday just briefly that God's inversive ways are not limited to him choosing David, nor limited to him choosing his son as his final and full anointed one. 
God's inversive ways also relate to how we're saved. So we read 1 Corinthians 1, several verses from it. In fact, we read several verses from 1 Corinthians 1 two different times in the service on Sunday. And we're going to do it again. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 1 again tonight to dig a little bit deeper. To do what Paul says that we should do in verse 26. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Let's read the second half of 1 Corinthians 1 again, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, I have a simple outline for us tonight. How God saves, and then why God saves that way. How God saves, and then why God saves that way. Under how God saves, I have four C's that are here in this passage. The first, of course, is the cross. No surprise. It's right there at the beginning of verse 18. The word of the cross. God saves by the cross. We see in verse 23, this is the message that Paul preached. We preach Christ crucified. Jesus upon the cross, dying in our place for sins, is the message that Paul preached that brings salvation. It's the only message It's the only means by which we can be saved, the cross. But Paul says in verse 18 that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Notice down in verse 22, contrary to the cross, it says Jews demand signs, miracles, proof. 
Not everyone who asked Jesus for a miracle in the Gospels was asking out of wrong motives. You can want to benefit from Jesus' miracles. You can want to glorify God for the power shown through miracles. But you can also ask Jesus for a miracle as if to test him, as if to put, as if to put him on the stand and elevate self over him. Jews seek signs, kind of like a show us. Show us if you're really the one. Show us. We'll be impressed enough, perhaps, to then believe and perhaps follow you. If we demand signs like that, then notice in the next verse, verse 23, then Christ crucified is a stumbling block. If what you're looking for is a sign, then your Messiah upon the cross, killed unjustly by his enemies, that's something to stumble. You trip over that. You, you, you can't get past that. Paul says in verse 22, on the other hand, Greeks, Gentiles, they seek wisdom. Philosophers, and, uh, thought people, students in, in this day, Greeks were obsessed with ideas and debating and scholars. They sought wisdom. And the more complicated and the more sophisticated, the better. That would be a message, a gospel message. It would be something to share with others, something to preach and teach, a piece of wisdom. They seek wisdom. Will Christ, crucified, cut the mustard for them? Well, no. Verse 23, that's folly to the Gentiles. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to some. They trip over it and can't get past it. Christ crucified is folly to others. It's ridiculous. It doesn't even need any more hearing. But, remember in verse 18, there's another category. To those who are being saved, the gospel, the word of the cross, the message of Christ crucified is the power of God. Not foolishness, but power. Not stumbling block, but power and salvation. How? How is it for them power? Well, that leads to the second C. How God saves, he saves to the cross. Secondly, he saves by calling. Calling. In verse 24, it says, To those who are called, whether they're Jew or Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Calling produces some sort of translation. Same message, same object. Christ crucified. No longer foolishness and weakness, but wisdom and power. Why? They're called. You see in verse 26, it says also, For consider your calling, brothers. How were you called? On what basis were you called? Well, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It doesn't mean those of noble birth can never be forgiven of their sins. It doesn't mean those who are relatively wise can never grasp the gospel. But what it does mean is that these are not prerequisites for entering the kingdom. If you come to Jesus with these as, as part of your resume for entering the kingdom, you don't get it. You're not going in. 
until you get this right. It's not according to wisdom. It's not according to power. It's not according to a noble birth. What does it mean when it says in Scripture that there's a calling or that some are called? There are actually a few different ways that Scripture uses this word called or calling. For instance, Christians can be called to a specific task or a specific purpose. Like Paul being called to be an apostle. That's how 1 Corinthians began. Paul, an apostle, called to be an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. Another way scripture uses the word call or calling or called is that general call to repent and believe that comes through the preaching of God's word indiscriminately and broadly and freely in this world. We're to go in all the world and preach the gospel. That is God's call to men and women to repent and believe and put their trust in Jesus. But there's a third way in which called or calling is used in Scripture, a more specific way. It's a calling unto salvation. It's a call to respond to the gospel, not just a call to hear the gospel and and you should respond, but a calling that, that procures the response to the gospel. We sometimes call this effectual call. You could call it God reeling someone in. You could call it God drawing someone to himself. Is that what's being talked about here in 1 Corinthians 1? Or is the call a call of preaching? Many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. And Jesus uses called there as preaching called. Is that what Paul has in mind here? Well, preaching is, of course, assumed in this passage. No one's cutting that out of the picture. Remember, verse 18, talk about the word of the cross. And and then verse 21, what we preach. And then verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. The general call of the gospel to repent and believe is here in this passage. But preaching by itself is no deciding factor in salvation. We've already seen in verse 18 that the word of the cross can get two different kinds of reactions. It's foolishness for some. To others, it's the power of God and the salvation. Look over to chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians where this becomes really clear. How preaching works in relationship to calling. Paul says in verse 1, When I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, preaching is essential to the gospel going forth and people being saved. Preaching is not by itself determinative in people getting saved. It is not according to a a man's eloquence, to him ordering logically the, the, the steps needed or the argument made. God has to bless the preaching of his word in a way that no man can do that aren't mere words. Spurgeon put it like this. 
The gospel is preached in the ears of all. It only comes with power to some. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless there were the mysterious power of the Holy Spirit going with it, changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls as preach to humanity unless the Holy Spirit is with the word to give it power to convert the soul. That's what is meant in 1 Corinthians 1 by called or calling. It's as it is in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Notice it's the same group all the way through. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Or hear this in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, that he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 2, 9. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's called you not according to your wisdom. He's called you not according to your power. He's called you not according to a noble birth, but according to his sheer grace. That's calling. Third C word here in this passage is choosing. Choosing, that word is there. Verse 27 and 28 has the word chose three times. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. What does it mean that God chose some? It means just what you think it means, and perhaps what you're hoping it doesn't mean. It means that God chooses. God is sovereign in salvation according to his mysterious wisdom and for his glory. We read in Ephesians 1 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, not according to our wisdom, not according to a kernel of goodness within us, not according to something he foresaw that we would do, according to the purpose of his will. James 2, verse 5 says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? If God has chosen us, it's not because we're, oh, so choosable. It's because he is gracious. And we can't comprehend why us. We're saved by the cross. We're saved by God's calling. We're saved by God's choosing. In short, the last one, the last C, we're, we're saved in and by Christ. 
1 Corinthians 1.30 says, because of him, by, by God's doing, literally, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You're in him. You're wrapped up in him. You have union with him. Your identity is wrapped up in him and his death and resurrection. Him who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All these things for us. He's the whole salvation package. He's the sum total of our salvation. And the difference maker is God. It's because of him or by his doing that we're in Christ Jesus. That we can identify with him. Now that's maybe more than you can handle for a night. Maybe that raises a lot of questions for you. And that's fine. That's, that's okay. It, it raises questions for me that I can't completely answer. Some answers, some questions can be answered and that deserves further discussion, further study. And, and some questions can't be answered. They, they are attributed to God's mysterious ways and we pray that he give us faith to trust what his word says and believe it. But that's generally speaking how God saves according to 1 Corinthians 1. Now, why God saves that way? Why does God save that way? There are four reasons in this passage and a fifth bonus one that came before verse 18 that I want to point out to you. So what does this passage say about why God saves that way? Why would he do it that way and not another way? Well, first, in verse 21, it pleased God. It pleased him. Again, this was part of his mysterious will. It pleased him, and we don't know why. It pleased him to go this way, to do it like this. It pleased him. Secondly, why God saves this way? Look at verse 19. To destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is exactly what happened on the cross. The bad guys thought they got Jesus. And it was the plan all along. They thought they were putting him to an end. And instead they were bringing sin to an end. They thought they were putting an end to the story. And we know it's just the beginning of the story. It's God's plan all along. God, in the cross, destroyed the wisdom of the wise. And he intends to show forth his power and his wisdom. That's why verse 24 talks about Christ being actually the power of God and the wisdom of God. It doesn't look like power and wisdom to have a naked man beaten, bloodied, and dying on a tree, mocked spit upon, scourged, gasping for breath. That doesn't look like power and wisdom, but, but God was up to something, to destroy the wisdom of the wise and to exalt his power and wisdom. Christ is that power and wisdom to those who believe. Why God saves this way, a third reason, so that we would not boast in self. Verse 29 says that. There's the so that. tells us this is a reason. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no one would have a basis by which to say, God, I thank you that I was smart enough to. 
I thank you that I had the opportunity to. I thank you that I had enough sense to. I thank you that my parents brought me to, to Sunday school when I was a kid. God, I thank you that I was sensitive enough to. My parents just taught me to be spiritually sensitive to things. and I thank you for that. No boasting before the Lord. God has a goal that no human being would boast in the presence of God. A fourth reason why God saves this way, the inverse of the third one, is so that we would boast in the Lord. We wouldn't brag on ourselves or put confidence in ourselves, but instead we'd brag on and put confidence in the Lord. Verse 31, quoting the Old Testament, said, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. If there's any kind of boasting about salvation, let it be a boasting about the Lord and his doing. If there's any credit to be attributed here, let it be a credit attributed to the Lord. And let it not just be credit, but boasting, bragging, worship. That's his goal, that all boasting would be his. And lastly, why God saves this way. Here's another reason, not in the passage we've read so far, but something that came before it. God saves in this kind of way so that his people are humbly united under him. Humbly united. Look back to chapter 1. Here's the reason Paul launched into this whole discourse that we've been studying in 1 Corinthians 1, the second half. In 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. Fellowship with the Son, vertical, and fellowship with those who are in fellowship with the Son, horizontal. So verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. By that, you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? You see, that, that lack of unity and that pride in the Corinthian church was one reason by which Paul launched into this thing about how you were saved, how they were saved. His whole point in bringing that up is to fix this problem of prideful disunity. He says, are you kidding? That doesn't gel with the way you were saved. You can't think, I'm on team Peter, and it's better than team Apollos. And you can't trumpet with, I'm on team Jesus, and he wins it all. Are you kidding? There are no teams here. You weren't wise. You weren't noble. You didn't come to him in your power, in your strength. In your own natural mind, you saw the cross as futile or a stumbling block. The only reason you saw it as power and wisdom is because God chose, because God called, because Christ died, because the gospel was preached and it came alive. That has humbling effects. At least it should. If you ever heard anyone be proud about these doctrines, 
You've heard someone who might know them theoretically but hasn't understood them in their heart. This should have a profound humbling effect on us and it should have a profound uniting effect on us. It also, outside this passage, teaches us confidence in salvation, security in our salvation. If God started it, he'll finish it. These doctrines also teach us confidence in the preaching of God's word. We go out and we preach, we tell a neighbor what the gospel is. Who knows what God will do? But only he can awaken the heart, only he can open eyes, only he can give ears to hear. Only he can make a new heart. These doctrines also remind us that God continues to use foolish means even in our sanctification, in our Christian growth. We trust him. Just as he used the foolishness of the gospel preached, and just as the message itself seemed foolish to human ears, so even now as we assemble, what, what are we doing? Some guys getting up before you, we're opening an old, old book. We're expecting God to work through these means. We're going to tear bread and drink a very small cup of juice in just a minute. And it seems foolish, seems unnecessary, at best a waste of time. But we expect God to come and work in power, to give faith, to strengthen, to encourage, and we're necessary to convict. Convict. 